This episode of EM Weekly has been archived. The ideas presented by the former host of EM Weekly may not reflect or represent the values of the Readiness Lab and the Doberman Emergency Management Group. Out of respect for the guests who contributed to this episode, it remains available online. EM Weekly starting right now, bringing emergency managers from around the world together to learn, share and collaborate. a cow uh, that belonged to a Mrs. O'Leary, who is a uh, sort of down-on-her-luck Irish uh, marm, uh, a a cow in her barn kicked over a lantern. Hi, and welcome to Ian Weekly, and this is your host, Todd DeVoe speaking. And this week, we are talking about all the different paths that you can take in the field of emergency management. And this week's guest is uh, Thomas Hankey. From well, he's from Chicago, first of all, so you know it's kind of cool. Um, but he's with uh, Titan Security Group. He's the director of emergency management over there, not affiliated with Titan HST. And uh, anyway, Thomas, um, he has had a great, really kind of cool career in emergency management and, and how he got into the field and where he is now and, and how he got there. And well, I'm gonna let him tell that story. Hey guys, don't forget to. Uh, Check us out on Facebook, LinkedIn, um, Twitter, Instagram, you know, all those typical social media sites. And uh, also, if you want to check out some other great shows, come over to sitchradio.com and check us out over there. And you can see some other emergency management programs that, um, that are featured over at Sitch Radio. So check out Sitch Radio, home of Ian Weekly. Now on to the interview. Tom, welcome to Ian Weekly. How are you doing today? Excellent, excellent. Thank you for hosting, Todd. Appreciate it. No problem. So we were talking a little while ago and uh, kind of just talking about your background and, and uh, we actually ended up chewing some of the same dirt sometime in our life, which is kind of cool. Um, but you, you've moved around a little bit. And one of the questions that I get a lot from people trying to break into emergency management is how do I get my first job? And I'd like to hear your story because I think it's kind of interesting. Sure, sure. I think, uh, first of all, from sort of a high level, no two stories are the same when it comes to emergency management because the field is so new um, and as both an academic uh, field and an operational profession, it's emerging, uh, it's new, it's evolving. So no two stories are the same. Um, and so mine is probably no more interesting or less interesting than anybody else's. But I was working private security in the private sector, uh, doing physical security for large buildings and large facilities, everything from airports to high rises to concert venues. Uh, and during that time, I volunteered with the Community Emergency Response Team, or CERT. Uh, a lot of your uh, listeners are probably very familiar with CERT. You know, the, the Green Helmets, great volunteers, started there in California and has spread all across the United States um, and uh, very similar um, to volunteer organizations elsewhere. But it was a great introduction for me to emergency management proper. So I was sort of adjacent to emergency management, if you will, uh, in that private security world. Um, but volunteering with CERT um, was fantastic. I very much enjoyed the initial training. Uh, the Chicago CERT team was run out of the Office of Emergency Management and Communications, 
which is the 911 center in Chicago, uh, and then very similar to uh, some other large cities, including New York. Uh, there's an EMA, an emergency management agency, um, for the local jurisdiction that is run out of that 911 center. So that's where we did a lot of our training, which that we're working in that shop. Uh, thought very highly of them. Really cool group, really diverse, really uh, skilled, um, uh, highly educated, uh, highly motivated, just just an awesome, awesome crew. And so that really is what made me want to get into um, emergency management on the, uh, on the public sector side. And so after pestering them for, I think, about 18 months, I finally, finally <laughs> found a role that was appropriate and uh, came on board as a senior emergency management coordinator for the city of Chicago OEMC. Well, that's a, that's a that's a great story, and and I always love to hear how people got here because, like I said, the, that's one of the big questions that we get. And you're right; it's everybody's journey is just a tad different. Yes, yeah, yeah, and I, you know, I've heard some great stories as well, folks with military backgrounds, uh, law enforcement backgrounds, fire service backgrounds, uh, medical backgrounds. The the commonality that I hear a lot is that folks come from something adjacent. Mm-hmm. You know, I, at that private sector security world, we certainly had some overlapping responsibilities with emergency management, um, you know, private sector, nonprofit sector, public sector. Um, the, the core responsibilities of uh, emergency management aligned pretty closely with the core responsibilities of a security professional. So uh, that that seems to be the one commonality that I've, I've kind of picked up on. The majority of folks uh, don't pop out of college and go straight into emergency management. They tend to have um, some other experiences, whether it's volunteer or career-wise, um, in something that's that's sort of, you know, closely related, adjacent, overlapping, uh, that, that preps them and gets them ready to, to make that leap into the emergency management world. So I, I want to stick on this uh, subject with you for a little bit, and then we're going to move into what Chicago is like. So now sure. you you've moved from private sector to public sector, and then I, I, I guess like a little bit in between, you were actually doing emergency management for uh, an art institute or a museum, correct? Yeah, that's correct. So I've um, been extremely fortunate, actually. My my career, I never would have drawn out my career path the way it's, it's emerged um, or evolved, but uh, I also wouldn't exchange it for the world. Uh, it's, it's just been virtually ideal. Um, so had that background in uh, private sector security, did that for about, I guess, six or eight years, um, and then went into the public sector for uh, the city of Chicago with their EMA, um, did that for uh, just over six years, and picked up my um, certified emergency manager designation uh, from the International Association of Emergency Managers, or IAEM. Um, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with that organization and and members as well. Um, And I picked up my master's degree in emergency and disaster management. Um, All of that took place in 2013, um, and I basically got those simultaneously. So I got the board certification, I got the master's degree, and then two weeks later, Um, One of my favorite museums in the world, the Art Institute of Chicago, which is the big uh, world-renowned art museum here in in the city of Chicago. And and, and I was going to say, if you guys don't know um, what that Art Institute is, just watch Fierce Peter's Day Off. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, there's been uh, several movies and television shows and and cultural references to the place. Um, You know, it's got just phenomenal artwork. Uh, billions and billions of dollars worth of artwork. So 
the job for the security director, uh, basically the, the director of security operations for that entire facility. Um, came available two weeks after I'd added that that certification and that degree, um, and it just felt like kismet. It just felt uh, like the right time to to make a jump. Um, I frankly never intended to go into the nonprofit sector, uh, and that that museum is a nonprofit. It's not owned by the city. It's not um, you know a, a private endeavor. It's a, it's a nonprofit organization um, that is you know closely aligned with a school. Uh, there's a school of the Art Institute of Chicago. Which is a separate but um, aligned institution uh, that, that educates younger artists, uh, and then there's the museum itself. And so, being able to take responsibility for um, easily the most valuable um, property that I'd ever been responsible for um, was uh, was a career opportunity I just just could not pass up. Uh, and again, very different setting, a uh, lot of culture shock um, going from. Uh, a domestic, um, you know, jurisdictional public sector emergency management agency, um, where I had planning in response, um, responsibilities, um, into, you know, sort of a, uh, academic nonprofit, um, um, sort of educational base or education centric, uh, organization. And so it was, it was, uh, it was kind of like the needle, uh, scratching on the record. Um, uh, you know, when you, when you see those scenes in the movies where, right. Uh, somebody so disparate walks into a bar that, uh, that everything literally comes to a, comes to a halt. I had that feel, uh, for, for a moment there thinking, wow, what have I gotten myself into? Um, but the, 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 uh, the culture, um, was, was really something you had to experience. And, uh, I, I greatly enjoyed my time there. I think, uh, was able to, to do some great things for that institution. Uh, was there for about four years. Um, and then another, another opportunity arose. And so I jumped back to the private sector, but, uh, yeah, having, having that experience, um, just utterly priceless. There's just, just no way to describe, um, being able to, uh, to walk into an institution like that with, you know, um, over a hundred years of, uh, uh, responsibility for the, the culture of Chicago, frankly. So just kind of keep it on that lines for a minute for what you did at the museum and interesting enough, um, Stephen Detweiler uh, out of Miami Dade uh, was writing a paper specifically on preserving cultural uh, places during disaster, and then yep. and, yep. and absolutely, and, I know Steve. Yeah, and and right around that time is when um, Notre Dame had their fire, you know, and, yes. and, and and preserving that, and and I know that there's actually up here in in California, there's another museum that's in a lot of movies. You probably don't even know it's a museum uh, when you see the movies. I, I've been there a hundred times, so I can recognize it. It's the Huntington Museum um, in near Pasadena. They had a fire there, and and one of the firefighters from their area was able to. He was a captain at the time. Was able to save like a whole building. Uh, you know, he's a hero in that place. And the idea of preserving culture uh, in a disaster is really important. Can you talk just a little bit about? what you did for planning and, and what that means to a community or to the nation for that matter, for a place like Chicago's art Institute or like the metropolitan in New York city or the Huntington museum or, or wherever. Sure. Sure. I think it's, it's a very fascinating culture in and of itself. Um, and I've actually been to the, to the Huntington a couple of times. Um, they've had some great security managers, um, and, and, uh, have a, a very excellent program there as well. Uh, the Smithsonian has its own emergency meeting. Yeah, Smithsonian, yeah. Um, out in, uh, out in DC. Um, so I think cultural properties overall get it. Um, it's, it's still because it's such a large field, uh, and because nonprofits often have extraordinarily tight budgets. Um, sometimes it's a matter of prioritization. 
um, and the need to sort of put the focus on the collection um, for whatever type of museum it is. So I walked into a situation at the Art Institute where they had an outstanding uh, in-house security team, uh, about 50 individuals uh, as a part of that in-house team, and then they had a contract security team uh, on top of that that had uh, about 200 individuals in the contract security team. So there's a team of about 250 folks uh, already in place um, and doing a very good job at protecting that artwork um, against sort of traditional hazards that you might think of, right? Somebody coming in and trying to steal a painting. Um, so it's, you know, the Thomas Crown affair. That's sort yeah. of like... Uh, again, while we're making all these movie references, that sort of, you know, cinematic, um, uh, museum theft, uh, sort of trope that goes on, right? Um, but they didn't have a whole lot of all hazards planning in place. Um, and that is certainly part of the reason that I was brought in was that background with the city of Chicago, um, doing planning, doing response, um, and very specifically sort of running the NIMS playbook, um, knowing, you know, the National Incident Management System, uh, basics at least and how they could apply to an institution instead of a jurisdiction. So came in, one of my very, very first, very, very top priority projects was to do the very first emergency operations plan uh, that that institution had had in its, you know, 100-plus year uh, glory history. Um, they had some very basic planning documents. They had some um, very uh, sort of simple fire plan, simple uh uh, theft prevention plan, but it, there was nothing all hazards and a uh, true risk assessment had not been run uh, in quite some time on that facility. So came in, did the all hazards risk assessment, uh, cranked out a brand new from scratch emergency operations plan uh, and was able to implement that uh, with the assistance of some very senior staff there who thankfully were very supportive, uh, understood what we were trying to do looked at the big picture and, and really, really got it. So uh, that can't be uh, given enough after enough credit. If you got the support of senior management in a facility like that, um, in, a, in an institution like that, um, the battle's already half won. So right. I was able to come in and, and really, really generate a brand new EOP because I had the support of the, uh, of the senior management, and that counted for a lot. That's great to have that senior management support, no matter where you are, whether you're a museum or at a college or even at a city for that matter, having the support of the senior officials. You know, and that's one of the things that we're talking about a couple episodes ago is selling what emergency management is and getting that buy-in from that senior leadership. And it's great that you had that. Yeah, very much, very much. There was, um, you know, just kind of a, a culture of let's get this done. Um, we did some really creative stuff in terms of working with, for example, you know, a great example of how specialized the facility was. So they had a team of in-house art handlers, and these folks were responsible for taking art to and from storage, uh, to and from conservation. Um, and so these aren't just traditional, you know, paintings, um, although certainly there were many, many paintings there, uh, some small, some large. Um, but they had modernist sculpture. Uh, they had 2,000-year-old statues. Uh, they had a little bit of everything. It's, it's truly a, a holistic, uh, encyclopedic uh, art museum. So being able to move that artwork around safely was um, a risk. That was something we identified in our, in our risk assessment. And so, for example, being able to work with these folks who are just true, true consummate professionals at moving artwork safely, um, safe for the art, safe for the people, uh, from place to place within this giant, you know, two million square foot uh, facility um, was really, really important and, and 
super educational for me. I, I learned so much uh, during the drafting of that EOP. Um, frankly, learned more about art in four years than I did in the previous forty. Uh, to be perfectly <laughs> honest, so uh, I was it was an awesome experience, and I still I still take great pleasure in going back. Uh, I, I do still live in Chicago, and so I take great pleasure in going back to that institution and uh, being able to see the the shows and see the artwork right. uh, and know that I'm not directly responsible for it anymore, <laughs> which is which is kind of a nice thing right. too. I've got to admit. So we're going to take a quick break here, and you know we did talk about the. Uh, the first flash mob ever with the Thomas Crown Affair. And uh, <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about Chicago, um, emergency management, and, you know, what it is like to plan. Because we hear about New York City. We hear about Los Angeles with the earthquakes and whatnot. You know, we hear about Florida with the hurricanes and Houston with the hurricanes and whatnot. Um, but what is Chicago worried about? Seconds count during an emergency. That's why at Titan HST, We're always inventing new technology to help people stay safe and help people who can provide help get connected with people who need help. At Titan HST, we've deployed mesh networking, allowing emergency communication, even when networks are down, augmented reality, and real-time translation. We believe in the power of people to help each other stay safe and thrive. Welcome back from that quick break. So thank you so much for, for listening to our sponsors. And please reach out to them and let them know that you heard them here on Ian Weekly because without them, we cannot bring you great guests like Tom. So, Tom, before we went on the break, we were kind of just alluding to what are the hazards that Chicago uh, is, is worried about. And no, the green water that happens on St. Patrick's Day is not a hazard to spill. It's done on purpose. Right, right. Just, just don't drink it because that's still Chicago city water, uh, <laughs> river water. So, uh, not the most, uh, high, hygienic per se. We're getting there. It's getting better. I can truthfully say that. Uh, there, you know, Chicago is interesting. As you said, there's, um, boy, there's a dichotomy in emergency management that I think is important to acknowledge. Emergency management and homeland security. Um, and that is, it's tough. We, we were talking earlier about senior support, right? Support mm-hmm. of senior staff. Um, so, Senior staff, uh, the public, um, funding, all of those things sort of orbit around the perception of threat. Um, and so New York City, obviously, um, you know, post-September 11th, terrorism became a, a major, major focus of the public, of the politicians, uh, of the corporate and civil leadership, uh, and of all the budgeting and funding that goes along with, with that. Um, Southern California, obviously with a history of earthquakes, some of which quite severe, um, has prioritized uh, sort of seismic preparation, um, you know, retrofitting, uh, preparedness, all the things that, that kind of go, go along with that threat. And when you look at Chicago, we've been extremely blessed in some sense uh, that we haven't had that catastrophic event. Um, you know, in 1871, uh, a third of the city burned down. So we're, we're absolutely familiar with large fires. That is, that is for sure. Um, and, and, and on that note, if you ever go to EMI, uh, the Emergency Management Institute of the National Fire Academy in, in uh, Maryland, uh, there is a store there called O'Leary's. And there's a uh-huh. reason why it's called O'Leary's. Why is that, Tom? Yes, so the legend, uh, and, and part of it was sort of discrimination against uh, recent immigrants into Chicago, but the, the Irish were frowned upon. Uh, and so the legend, folks have probably heard, uh, was that a cow uh, that belonged to a Mrs. O'Leary, who is a uh, sort of down-on-her-luck uh, Irish uh, marm, uh, a, a cow in her barn kicked over a lantern. 
uh, and that that was the cause of the Chicago fire. And of course, there's uh, little to no evidence whatsoever that that, that is the uh, that is the actual cause. Um, one thing I will throw out there, though, that I think is pretty neat. Um, speaking of uh, fire institutes, the Chicago Fire Academy or the Chicago Fire Department's training facility uh, is built on the exact place where the Chicago fire started. Why did I so know that? If you come to Chicago, you go to the Chicago Fire Academy, uh, directly out front of that facility is a, um, uh, basically a sculpture uh, of a uh, uh, sort of golden uh, uh, bronze colored flame coming up out of the ground. And that is actually where the Chicago fire started. And that's where they elected to put their uh, fire academy uh, when, they, when they, you know, started a formal uh, Chicago fire department uh, as a profession rather than as a volunteer uh, organization. So so wow. if you're ever in Chicago, look that up. It's it's worth seeing for sure. So okay, so now that we went on a little detour on that conversation. <laughs> Tangent, sure. <laughs> so let's go back to you know what what disasters do do you really worry about? What what emergencies, what what natural phenomenon do we have to worry about, you know, when we're in Chicago outside of the yeah. wind? Absolutely, absolutely. So Chicago has some very interesting natural phenomena. Um, we get uh, amazing winters here. Um, they can be quite mild uh, or they can be pretty brutal. Um, so infrastructure takes a beating. We'll uh, commonly have temperatures that are below freezing for weeks at a time uh, where temperature at no point gets above freezing. Um, so for your transportation infrastructure, your uh, medical infrastructure, um, your uh, power infrastructure, communications infrastructure, uh, that is definitely a threat. Um, and certainly it's a threat to, to human life as well. There, there are times where you cannot be outside in the city uh, for more than a couple of minutes uh, without risking uh, serious, serious health or serious, uh, serious risk your health or serious injury. Um, one of the most... Um, <laughs> One of the most uh, uh, strong memories, the strongest memories of my time during my response days uh, was, um, folks might recall, there was a massive blizzard here in 2011, mm-hmm. um, and national news covered it because uh, Lakeshore Drive, which is the big uh, sort of six or eight lane highway that runs right along Lake Michigan, um, literally just a, a few dozen feet from Lake Michigan at, at some points, um, got hit by that blizzard uh, as it came uh, very similar to the nor'easters that folks face uh, in, in New England or in, in um, um, you know, the northeast. So the, the storm essentially backed in off the lake, uh, picked up a ton of moisture. We had 60 mile an hour per, uh, 60 mile per hour winds sustained uh, and um, basically horizontal snow for an entire day. Uh, and we, we got uh, a couple of feet of snow, uh, but it shut down Lakeshore Drive and it hit so quickly. We were in the pro- process of closing Lakeshore Drive, actually, but we had not gotten to that segment yet. Uh, the segment getting out of downtown Chicago. Uh, and so around 750 uh, to 800 cars basically became entombed um, because the snow piled up so quickly, it literally immobilized those cars. Uh, and so I was one of a large number of responders, uh, fire, police, emergency management, who went out uh, in that storm uh, and pulled people out of those vehicles um, and, and got them to safety. So not all uh, emergency management agencies uh, have field responders. Um, here in Chicago, we do have that. Uh, and so as long as I live, I will, I will never forget. Uh, I was a paramedic and myself, we would team up. Uh, no one worked alone in those conditions, obviously. Uh, we basically uh, grabbed a city SUV, uh, you know, hit, hit the lights and sirens and um, drove the wrong way on Lakeshore Drive, which is another experience <laughs> I'll never forget. Uh, uh, because the, the lane closest to the lake was completely covered mm-hmm. in 
several feet of snow, which had, had piled up and then drifted uh, on that side of the on that side of the. Uh, uh, the, the drive. And so we had to go, uh, northbound in the southbound lanes. And I will never forget that as long as I live. Um, actually came up on a rescue squad, uh, which is a, a fairly large piece of apparatus from the fire department, uh, that was facing the correct way in those lanes. Um, and as we were driving, I, he had complete lights on everything he had, headlights, every flasher on that truck. And I did not see him until I was about 15 feet away from him. Um, to give you an idea of what those conditions were like out there. Luckily, both of us were crawling, uh, so we stopped nose to nose, probably about five feet apart. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, the fire guys were in full bunker gear. Uh, it uh, keeps you cool when you're in a fire, but it also keeps you warm when you're in a blizzard. Yeah. And uh, I didn't have that luxury, so I was freezing my backside off. Uh, but we, uh, we pulled uh, several hundred people out of those cars. Um, we got them to... Uh, buses, uh, CTA buses, uh, Chicago Transit Authority buses that had also become stuck on that, uh, that same section of the drive. Uh, but that allowed us to get everybody in one place. Uh, we ran diesel fuel to the buses so they could keep running and keep their heaters going. Uh, and then one by one, we plucked people out of those buses, put them on fire apparatus because they had such high ground clearance uh, that they could get in and out of that space. And so just uh, a small group at a time, uh, maybe 8, 10, 12 uh, folks at a time, we would pull off those buses uh, and then take to safety. Uh, and that, that was an all-night operation. Hmm. I will never forget seeing the uh, the sun come up the next morning and uh, just seeing all those cars uh you know, stuck. Uh, and it took us days and days and days to, to tow them, uh, clear the drive, uh, and truly, truly get it back open, uh, in both directions for traffic. So that, that's one story I can tell that is, that is definitely emblematic of the type of weather that we can deal with here in Chicago. Um, and then we may have a winter that's extraordinarily mild and we only get, you know, a, a foot of snow the entire season, um, over a, a couple of minor storms. Um, so weather certainly, uh, and, uh, and that story really, um, I think is the, the best, most encapsulated one. Um, well, you got the flip uh, side of that, though, right? In the summers with the, yeah, you know. <laughs> it, it, it's extremely hot, too. So um, before I, you know, Chicago, literally the temperature here will swing uh, 100 degrees Fahrenheit in an average year. So we'll hit 100 in the summer. We'll hit zero in the winter. Um, and it may go higher than 100. It may go below zero. Um, and, and, and and by the way, just to let everybody know, we're, we're talking Fahrenheit, not, not Celsius. Yes, right, right. Yeah, yeah. If it, did, if it got 100 centigrade, we'd probably have some problems. Uh, so, uh, but no, it, it's, it's really important that um, uh, that weather be taken into account. Before I worked for the Emergency Management Agency here in Chicago in uh, 1995, we had a terrible, uh, terrible heat wave uh, in Chicago. And, and Heat we tend to get for shorter periods. Um, I, I mentioned the cold snap might last, you know, two or three weeks below freezing. Heat we normally don't get those uh, extreme temperatures, um, you know, uh, forty degrees centigrade, hundred degrees uh, Fahrenheit for long. It's it's normally a short period. In '95 we got it for uh, over a week, uh, and we had uh, seven hundred fatalities. Mm-hmm. Seven hundred fatalities here in uh, in Chicago in 1995, and completely changed our. Uh, uh, hot weather uh, preparedness and response mechanisms. Um, to, to Chicago's credit, um, sometimes we'll we'll take one in the take one in the in the face. Um, you know, take a pretty hard shot, um, and and we learn from it and we and we analyze it. Um, there's a a fire chief, um, great example. Fire chief uh, during that blizzard, uh, ahead of time. Uh, we knew the storm was coming. We had a couple of days' notice. Uh, he rented um, approximately six or eight snowmobiles 
uh, and trained his guys how to ride those snowmobiles and essentially pull uh, uh, gurneys behind them. Uh, on the snowmobiles. Uh, and so when we had some medical emergencies out there on Lakeshore Drive, that's who we called. We got these guys on snowmobiles, uh, firefighter in the front, paramedic in the back, uh, basically tied a, tied a, a skitch, if you will, uh, to use a Midwestern phrase to the back, uh, and would drag that, that passenger to safety, uh, using a snowmobile, uh, on what traditionally is one of the busiest roads in the United States, right? And we're driving down the middle of it on a snowmobile. Um, but that's, that's a great example of foresight, uh, that guy, uh, Michael Fox is his name. He's, he was the head of uh, special services for the Chicago Fire Department, recently retired. Uh, but I want to give him a shout out because that was his initiative, saying, we're going to need these. Um, I will take it out of my budget um, because this is the kind of equipment that is going to save lives. And he was absolutely right. Um, so mm-hmm. having lived through blizzards before, he knew exactly what he needed. Uh, he went to bat with the higher-ups. Um, they endorsed him fully. And having that equipment out there literally saved lives uh, during that, that really, really nasty overnight when we were pulling people out of these stranded vehicles. Um, so we, we learned from our mistakes um, and, uh, uh, and evolve uh, here in Chicago. So uh, that's, that's definitely um, uh, kind of puts an exclamation point on, I think, the, the weather-related. Um, we certainly have um, other natural hazards, mostly uh, uh, flooding. We get a lot of rain here. Uh, that surges up and down. Um, so we get riverine flooding. We get overland flooding. Uh, we are right next to, you know, a, a basically an inland sea. Uh, so we can get some pretty serious wave action um, and uh, and risk that comes with that. And then, of course, the other thing that we worry about um, immensely, uh, frankly, is the human-caused hazard of terrorism. Right. Uh, and unfortunately, um, you know, Chicago is, is the third largest city in the United States. It's known for its architecture. Uh, it's got a skyline that has appeared in multiple uh, extremist publications. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we know that we are in the crosshairs of both um, domestic extremists, uh, and international terrorists. Um, and so, um, you know, we, I can give you some specific weather related examples, uh, that, that caused, uh, immense havoc here. Uh, I can't give you a whole lot of terrorist examples because our local police department and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, uh, have stopped multiple plots here right. in Chicago. Uh, I know of three, um, that were, um, in the, um, execution stages, uh, and thankfully the, uh, the FBI had interdicted, uh, and gotten, uh, a mole, um, uh, inside those operations, uh, and, and were able to make, uh, make arrests, um, you know, when the individuals thought they were, they were going to be setting off uh, an explosive device or when the individuals thought that they were going to be, uh, buying a weapon of mass destruction to use on a, on a civilian populace. Um, and so we've, we've been extremely fortunate because we've got awesome, awesome law enforcement here, uh, in Chicago. And I'll also say, um, we have a great partnership between the Chicago Police Department, uh, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Um, we have a regional FBI office here in Chicago that is very capable, uh, very well staffed. Um, and there isn't the, um, again, cinematic, um, you know, uh, locals versus feds uh, sort of mentality, right, where the FBI shows up and says, we're in charge here. Uh, it, it just, I've never heard of it happening here in Chicago. They um, they play well together. Um, they understand that they're a resource for each other, uh, that there are certain things the FBI can do that the Chicago Police Department cannot do, and vice versa. Um, and so they, they really, really support one another um, here in this jurisdiction. Um, and so thankfully, thankfully, um, that is that is a hazard that is definitely on our radar, 
but it's one that's been just beautifully interdicted uh, and interrupted by the, uh, the the local, state, and federal law enforcement um, that we have uh, that we have here in Chicago. And I should give a shout out to the state of Illinois as well. Um, we're fortunate that we have two uh, fusion centers here in Illinois. Mm-hmm. So speaking of learning from mistakes of the past, we're really working hard to assemble those, you know, suspicious activity reports, uh, suspicious persons reports, um, um, you know, suspicious uh, purchases uh, of chemicals or of uh, uh, possible precursor materials for terrorist attack. All of that is run through the two fusion centers, uh, one in Chicago and one in the state capital of Springfield. Uh, and so being a, a state that has two fusion centers, um, we're really fortunate. We're, we're, we're a little spoiled uh, with the amount of <laughs> intel uh, that they are able to push out right. um, to frontline folks like myself who are in um, security, uh, homeland security, uh, or emergency management roles. So I think the two, uh, again, I, I would say probably uh, extreme weather uh, and then terrorism. Those are the two that really um, we, we keep a close eye on. Um, and then last but not least, uh, pandemic. Um, and so I, any large city, um, it's sort of below the radar. I know it doesn't get enough attention. Um, I know the, the public health listeners, uh, to your podcast are going to, are going to be saying, absolutely. You should have named that one first. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it's, you know, and, and threat wise, I think it, it definitely has the, the potential, um, frankly, to cause much higher fatalities or, or much, uh, higher infection rates, right? Than, uh, uh, casualty rates than, than, um, just about any other threat or hazard that we're facing. Um, and so we've done some pretty good, um, uh, pretty good, uh, tabletop exercises and, uh, um, full scale exercises, um, national level drills. Uh, the Chicago Department of Public Health is really, really active in, um, uh, the Illinois Department of Public Health is really, really active in. Um, and again, it's just, you, you can't, um, one sector cannot solve a problem that large, uh, and that diverse. Um, and, and that hard to get your hands around. Um, the sectors have to work together. And so uh, I think um, uh, the pandemic planning here has been probably above average for a large city in the United States. I'm, I'm very proud of the, the, the CDPH here uh, that, that we have available to us. Um, but at the same time, um, it's, that's, that's a hazard that's so difficult to plan for because it's so hard to prove a negative um, right. when we have an outbreak that doesn't turn uh, into a very, very high uh, fatality percentage for those who have been uh, impacted or infected. Um, their overly confident sense of calm, right? I think we, we get a little bit lackadaisical saying, well, you know, flu season wasn't that bad this year, so uh, we're going to be fine with this whole infectious disease thing. Um, I think it's just... Um, uh, it's just a hazard that we've all got to worry about no matter where we're at uh, in this country, but especially in urban areas, uh, because as we've seen with, um, you know, Ebola uh, in uh, in Africa, if that gets into an urban area, uh, we really, really have uh, a serious, serious problem on our hand uh, with the with the latest with the uh, the rate of infection and the rate right. of fatality. So right, right, right. maybe that's my my, uh, you know, three. Uh, three top ones, and certainly we face a lot of others. But uh, just to summarize, I would say um, extreme weather. Uh, I would say uh, terrorism, um, and I would say uh, pandemic disease or infectious disease. Here's a weird question. I mean, other parts of Illinois and have this issue. Do you guys in Chicago? Has there ever been a tornado touchdown in Chicago? So that's a, that's a great question. So when I teach. Um, uh, when I teach a, a class on emergency management, that's one of the things I ask the class, and I, I kind of bait them a little bit. I have to be honest. So if any future students are listening to this, they'll they'll know to give me the correct answer. But I always say, well, you know, we 
talk about tornadoes and we talk about extreme weather, but that could never happen in a city like Chicago, right? And everybody sort of nods and says, right, yeah, of course, of course. So that's that's one of those great canards, one of those great myths, right? Um, absolutely, tornadoes can happen in cities. Uh, we had one go through Chicago in 1967. Um, it started in, uh, it touched down in an immediate suburb uh, just outside city limits called Oak Lawn. Uh, where it did immense damage, uh, including going through a um, commuter bus yard. Um, so these are, you know, picture those rounded old 1960s buses, right? Um, where it just threw them around like like Tonka toys. Uh, it was it was just amazing the the damage it did there. Then it went all the way across the city of Chicago from west to east uh, and disappeared into Lake Michigan, where it was a water spout briefly and then dissipated. Um, and that caused, I believe. I believe it was around five or seven fatalities uh, within Cook County, which is the, the county that Chicago is, is located in here in Illinois. Um, and, you know, 1967, not super recent. Uh, so, again, folks have sort of forgotten about that. Right. Um, but I, I would encourage your listeners go. Um, it's generally referred to, I believe, as the Oak Lawn Tornado. Um, but uh, Google that, look that up, and uh, the images are, are Pretty, pretty spectacular. I mean, it was a, uh, I believe nowadays we were probably qualified as an EF2 or EF3. Uh, so it was a pretty significant um, tornado and, and did quite a bit of damage and, and caused some fatalities. So, yes, tornadoes can hit cities. Uh, and, yes, we have had them uh, in Chicago in, uh, in modern history. If you could say one thing to all the emergency managers in the world at one time, what would it be? Oh, that's a good one. Wow. Uh, all that power. Uh, let's see. No, I think I think emergency managers in general are a very helpful group. Um, and so I think what I would say to them is that we can be a force multiplier. Um, and there's a couple ways that we can do that. Um, we connect those different sectors uh, in a very large way. If we're doing our job well, there are going to be folks in the private sector uh, who know, trust, and respect us. Uh, and the same is going to be true of the nonprofit sector. Uh, and the same is going to be true of the public sector. So it's very important for emergency managers to be able to be sort of the connective tissue um, among those sectors. Because we had that all-hazards mentality, because we know there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong and that no individual sector can have all the solutions and be the be-all and end-all uh, to every single hazard, great opportunity there for us to act as that force multiplier uh, that, that gets the private sector involved, that gets the nonprofit sector involved, that gets everybody pulling in the same directions, um, that has everybody look at their plans uh, and de-conflict uh, and see, you know, whose plan might not align with, with somebody else's plan on this particular point or in this phase of emergency management. Um, the other thing that I think we can do really, really well as a young, new emerging profession uh, is we can unite um, academics with practitioners um, or, or researchers uh, with operators. Um, and I think that's really, really important too because I think there's a lot uh, of research that can be done and I think there's a lot uh, of um, operator lessons or practitioner lessons that would be extremely useful to um, folks on the academic side. So I think that's a two-way street as well. And so I really see that as a, as a force multiplier too. So um, cross-sector collaboration uh, and then uh, collaboration among practitioners and academics. Um, if I could say one thing to all of the emergency managers out there, that is what I would really, really push. I would just preach the gospel of um, being that connecting tissue, being that force multiplier 
um, that connects all of those things together because we, we can do it. And I think very, very, uh, very few other professions um, or skill sets can make that claim, but emergency managers can. You know, I, I, I love that because as somebody who has his uh, toes in both the practitioner and the academic side, I, I agree with you 100%. Amen. Amen. Yep, absolutely. All right, Tom, toughest, book, toughest question of the day. What book, books, or publication do you recommend to people in emergency management? Ooh, that's a good one. That's a good one. So I have a, a couple of different things uh, that, I, that I really like to um, – uh, Keep my uh, keep my fingers on the pulse uh, with. Um, I think there are a, a handful of really great organizations out there, um, and so when I see a reading list that comes out for ASIS, which is the Professional Security Organization, uh, or a reading list that comes out for uh, IAEM, um, those immediately get my attention. Um, there's a uh, introduction to emergency management book that's now in its sixth or seventh edition. Uh, Haddow is the, the lead author, H-A-D-D-O-W. Uh, I think that's my top um, introduction book uh, to emergency management. That's the one that I normally uh, recommend um, folks just starting out in the field give a good read. I require that in the class that I teach uh, at uh, DePaul University here in Chicago. That's our textbook because I think um, even at a graduate level, it's a really, really good introduction. Um, so I'm always looking for new stuff. I actually subscribe to about uh, nine different magazines, um, <laughs> some general general interest, um, but also a lot of super nerdy stuff. Uh, so, you know, security management magazine, um, uh, a foreign policy magazine. Um, there's a, a magazine on communicable disease that I subscribe to. So it's, you know, it's sort of like um, whatever you're interested in, uh, I think you should, you should pursue. I'm a voracious reader. Um, and so I'm always looking for those reading lists for new stuff. Um, if somebody's just getting into the field, I really recommend that hat out text because I think it's a really great place to start. And so I might ask you, what do you use in your class? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a great question. So um, I like McIntyre. Uh, I have yep. a lot of his stuff. Um, and actually, the introduction book that I'm using right now for a class I'm developing, um, I'm using uh, Brenda Phillips's book, and I'm also using The Human Side of Disaster by Dre, uh, by Drebeck. Yeah, Drebeck is awesome. Yeah. Yep. See, we could get real nerdy with this. Oh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, absolutely. Love Tom, Thomas Drebeck. First of all, he's got a great first name. Uh, <laughs> 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 sorry. Low-hanging fruit. I had to take that joke. Uh, but no, he's a great writer. And then um, uh, I'm sorry that you, you referenced another one um, in the middle there that I'm not familiar with. Um, sure. Uh, Brenda Phillips. Uh, she's a CRC press. Uh, she has a couple books out. I was actually using her disaster recovery book for a while. And then, uh, uh, then I moved over to McIntyre's uh, recovery. Got it. And, 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 yeah. Got it. Yeah. So everybody, now you hear a bunch of, now you hear two professors freaking getting nerdy on here. So exactly. <laughs> well, Hey, that one I'm not familiar with. So I'm absolutely going to check that out. So I, I learned something else on this call. It's, it's right. totally, totally worth my time already. Hey, and don't forget, um, go to, if you're not on Facebook, um, you get on and go join the EM Weekly group. Um, it's it's a closed group, so you have to request to get on, and you can vote for what your favorite book is. Uh, because we're doing the top ten books that an emergency manager should have on their bookshelf for 2019. So 
and that will go live on our Thanksgiving show on on uh, whatever Thanksgiving is Thursday. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Oh, that's excellent. That's excellent. Well, and I'll I'll put in a plug for my text then as well. I, I can't resist it. Um, mine is focused on uh, cities essentially or dense uh, res, uh, dense population centers, uh, and so that's urban emergency management. Um, and that one's uh, put out by Butterworth Heineman uh, and came out in 2017. So it's uh, fairly current as well. And uh, especially for your listeners who may be in urban areas, um, hopefully there's some good stuff in there for those listeners as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. I do uh, love it. Hey, Tom, we got to get going here. It was great having you on the show. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say before we let you go? No, I appreciate it so much. And uh, for folks who are emergency managers out there or folks who are aspiring emergency managers, I think you've chosen a fantastic profession. And I think it's one that's emerging and changing. And that alone is a really, really exciting fact that can't be said about most professions or most career paths. So this is a really, really exciting thing to do for a living and a really, really exciting time to be doing it. Thanks for your time, Tom. Thank you, Todd. Appreciate it.